Welcome to Ravel, a roundtable show about how faith gets complex with the vast amount of information at our fingertips. For some people, this complexity has caused the unraveling of their faith, and for other people, it's been liberating. Take us, for example. I'm Stephen. I'm Josh. And I'm Emily. We each grew up in different parts of the American Christian spectrum, and as some of our beliefs migrate, we still feel like our theology is in process. Theology always has fundamentally been, and will always be, an exploratory dialogue. That alone is proof that faith raveling doesn't have to be a crisis, even if it feels like it. We don't have all the answers, so we want to use this show to model what it can look like to genuinely sort through beliefs in real time. So share a drink with us as we pull on the thread of our own pressing questions. Thanks for listening. Hello, and welcome to the Ravel Podcast. Please keep your hands fastened at all times during the duration of this ride. Thank you. Keep your hands fastened. <laughs> like handcuffed, like like holy handcuffs. <laughs> I was thinking like pockets, keep but your, that works too. Keep your hands fastened. Man, you when in you, prayer, you you gave know, me ASMR prayer. when you opened just now. I got that oh, the full you. body shiver. Ugh. Wonderful. Your that Siri voice goal. is great. Thank you. Um I call it my mom slash library voice. Um, because that's how I would talk in when I worked at the library at my seminary. It would be if it was during uh, finals week or like midterms and people would come in, they'd be like, hi, can you help me find this book? I'm like, sure. I'd love to help you find a book. One moment, please. Yeah. And I'd like <laughs> search on the wow. computer. Um, but here we are. This is not a ride. Uh, well, it's kind of a ride. It's a ride diving deep into theology and beliefs. So welcome, friends. How are you? What are you drinking? What are your beverages of choice today? Steven is not going to like this. Uh-oh. I'm drinking a Topo Chico from Monterey, Mexico. And I don't know why it took me this long to become a Topo Chico girly, but better late than never. So I ended up putting in some lemon simple syrup, some lemon juice, and some Anagostra bitters, like just like a couple dashes. Gave it a little bit of a pink color, a little bit of a flavor. Still pretty light. Honestly, the bitters are not enough alcohol to like make this technically alcoholic. But it's just very tasty. Okay, listen. I have burned. I have been burned once before on ridiculing a podcasting partner about their beverages, and I have I have turned a new leaf. I have taken repentance seriously, and I want to acknowledge your Topo Chico conversion. Thank you. I also want to acknowledge that Christians can disagree about things, and. I feel like you and I have created a safe space in which we can disagree about this and not let it come between us. Wow. That's what this podcast is all about. <laughs> right growth. here, folks. Yeah. Yeah. That was great. I am enjoying a warm, cozy mug of honey lavender yogi tea with a dollop of honey, just like local fresh Montana honey that I scooped out with one of those little... Winnie the Pooh, like comb yes. things, right? And then you pour the water on it and you just watch it melt. It's kind of a meditative experience just watching that honey melt into the tea. It's just, well, it's delightful. So I'm all cozied up. Love it. I do have a quick question for Josh. How much alcohol would you need to consider it to be an alcoholic beverage? 
Uh, I don't know the maths off the top of my head, but let me get back to you. Okay, uh, that's a hmm. it's a it's a honest honest question. How far um, is too far? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> or not enough. Um, I am drinking a vanilla lavender yerba tea. It is nice. It's a, technically a tea latte, um, but representing rawhide coffee here in Cody. They do it well, folks. Their yerba is mm-hmm, so good. The sh- the, Lovely. Divine. The shout outs, the advertising that we've given Rawhide over the years. Mm. We should work yeah. something out, you know? We really should. I think they'd be open for anything. And they have I really cool merchandise, too. So cool. maybe talk their ear up about that. <laughs> so I looked up the alcohol content of bitters because I honestly did not know off the top of my head. They are generally bottled at 35 to 45% alcohol proof, which is similar to liquor. But like when you do a dash of bitters, it's like quite literally like drops. Mm -hmm. So like you could do like a shot of bitters, like one Mm -hmm. to one and a half ounces. Yikes. If you really wanted to. But like, yeah, even if you did like 20 dashes of bitters, it's not even going to be a teaspoon. You know what I mean? More of a tincture of alcohol that you have here. Yeah, yeah, like like my body is not even going to notice the alcohol. Okay. Theoretically. Well, there you go. Mm, I, I bet it does. It's just your conscious mind won't. Oh. Right. But it's like it's like nowhere even close to like drinking. A, it's mm-hmm. kind of like it like a similar parallel might be decaf. Sure. Like where like there is technically caffeine in decaf, but like the amount of decaf you would have to drink to equal to get caffeine drunk would kill you is yeah like literally impossible like i would like the i would it would not be physically possible for me to feel a buzz drinking like 10 of these drinks that i've made did you say caffeine drunk yeah we should have a name for it there really should be a name for it well over caffeinated. we all know what it is yeah we call it over caffeinated jittery caffeine drunk okay (laughs) emily wow take it away Well, thank you for answering that question, Josh. I feel yeah. like I've definitely learned something. Um, You've been acknowledged. So yeah. It's my topic. I, you know, we've been recording kind of sporadically and it feels like I haven't had a topic in like five months. And I know that's not true, but that's just how I feel. I was picking my husband's brain today. Uh, I was like, Alex, I need a topic. Like it's been forever since I've had one. What do you want to like? What would you want to talk about if you were on Ravel? And he's like, you know what really grinds my gears? And I was like, oh, this ought to be good. Uh, but he really did bring up a valid point. We were talking about points of scripture that are heavily weaponized and or used for argumentative sakes. You know, for example, homosexuality, getting tattoos, eating shrimp, things like that. Why are people so comfortable and or willing to use scripture in moments like that? But when there are other parts of scripture that we don't want to pay any attention to, like, for example, slavery, genocide, rape, sexual assault, murder. Right. And he was kind of leaning towards the idea of why are people okay with some things and not okay with other things like why is murder in some instances fine and in other instances it's not like how do we get to choose when scripture is helpful or not helpful life-giving or not life-giving what kind of power do we give scripture so that's what i want to talk about today uh I sense I sense Stephen is not ready for the conversation. 
Well, not sorry. <laughs> you're no, don't be sorry. Yeah, I work for a podcast called The Bible for Normal People, and like you do, they've done hundreds of episodes, and this is still one of the central questions that we're all still trying to answer. <laughs> He's like, "What do we do with it?" Yeah, what is the Bible, and what do we do with it? Is like literally part of our like organizational statement. <laughs> I want to, but I want to be a bit more specific. I think the idea of... You want to talk about the weaponization. Yes. And mm-hmm. why are the verses that are weaponized the verses that are weaponized and not others that are clearly not good like yeah. for society? Genocide, yeah. not good for society. Murder, not good for society. But we tend to just kind of overlook those or say, well, you know, that was it's fine that was in the past or that's not really what it meant but with other verses we're very direct and hold on to a true fact of no that's clearly it's a sin it says it's a sin see right there why why do we do that why do we do that (laughs) what i hear you getting at the most is like how do we see the difference between prescriptive versus descriptive text and i have two thoughts off the top of my head because i think that this is primarily a cognitive action My first thought is that I had a pastor several years ago and he taught a like a Bible methods class, like a like hermeneutics. Like it was like I'd say like entry level seminary level, if you will. And one of the examples that he brought up was like when we see I don't know where would this be Samuel, like say like in first and second Samuel Chronicles, like that era, when we see like this story of God directing the Israelites to go kill the Amalekites. He used this as an example about like cultural context, right? Like that is in no shape or form telling us, the 21st century reader, to go do a genealogy of people in the Israel Palestine Iraq era area and like try and figure out who's descended from the Amalekites and wipe them out. Mm-hmm. Like in no way is that prescriptive to the modern reader. What's ironic to me about that is that pastor in particular absolutely sees other parts of the Old Testament as prescriptive for the modern day which hmm. I think is what you're getting at. Like that feels like picking and choosing. Mm-hmm. And my other thought, and I've had this written down for a while and I think it applies here. So I'm going to bring it up because I, I thought I was going to make a whole episode about this, but I think that there's a, there's a cognitive bias to things that are written as like absolute. Mm. Like we, we do this for the constitution. I think many Christians do this for the Bible. Like when something yeah. is, or like even, at, even at a job, like I'm like going through this at work right now, kind of like we're like making documentation for like, like literally what are we supposed to do <laughs> like let's write it down make it official and it like feels very official when something is written down mm-hmm. or you sign something sure um, like we we have this like bias i think as modern readers to think that like oh if it's written down it's perfect like yeah. we i think we bias it as absolute or true or uh prescriptive in a way that like i don't think that we do to like verbal words mm-hmm. like when you hear a discussion it's much more obvious that it's a discussion than like if it's written and I, th- I think that that is a significant factor to the Bible discussion that, I, to be honest, I haven't really heard anyone talk about yet in that way. Oh, no, definitely. And I would even say it's certain written parts of the Bible because we know that there are messages written in the Bible that we are called to live by, you know, example, off the top of my head, uh, love your neighbor. And people like seem to have issue with that. But other parts of the Bible... Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. My initial answer, which is going to sound very like 
classic hermeneutics is that context is king and that like no matter what you're reading like you have to read something in its historical social context and there's this great guy who's only on tiktok right now but he is releasing a podcast soon his name is dan mcclellan um he is a i don't know exactly what his background is but he is a scholar and he he uses this phrase called data over dogma which i think is really smart like it's a very simple way of translating and like highlighting the problem of not reading something in context and like i think that no matter if someone considers themselves a person of faith or not a person of faith like you should still care about reading in context like just because it says something happened it, like it's usually not that straightforward either way but even then like where do you go from there like even if like you're going to consider cultural context like mm-hmm. how how do you determine from there like what is quote unquote for you and what is not right Emily, what are your initial thoughts on determining that? Like how, like if you were going to explain the Bible to a five-year-old, knowing that like the Bible is full of these like nuanced narratives and like historical cultural moments that the authors are inscribing in their own way and then like is not then compiled over hundreds of years. Like how, how would you like try and give a base level understanding to someone? Um, so... That's actually a really good question. For children's time, every now and then I have these wonderful little books and they're basically the stories of the Bible, but they're broken up and they're written for kids to understand. And I remember one Sunday, very vividly, I was sharing the story of Paul and Paul's letters to you know Timothy and Philemon and all these. And one kid said, can we still read these letters today? And I said, Oh my gosh, what a great question. You actually can. So hundreds and hundreds of years ago, right, these letters were compiled and that is part of the Bible. And so I opened a Bible and like showed them the Bible and told them how it's really cool that we can see different parts of the Bible from so many, you know, centuries all compiled together and it's all telling a part of God's story. And they're like, oh, yeah, that's so cool, right? Yeah, okay. Um, So... I think, sadly, children, youth can grasp that idea, I feel like, a lot more than adults can, because oftentimes, I believe reading and understanding the Bible is something that is not always, but can be for sure, generationally biased so like when i talk to my parishioners they're like oh i never knew that was in the bible I'm like well who taught you to read the bible like how were you taught to read the bible versus kids today i'm sure are being taught how to read the bible a lot differently than their grandparents were right and i believe that when it comes to reading scripture even if they understand context and history and authorship, I believe people feel the need to take power with scripture. So if they see something that does not fit with their own personal beliefs, even though they know context is all different, history is different, authorship is very specific and intended for a specific audience, I believe people feel the need to take scripture to utilize that for further gain, for increasing power, and for basically lifting themselves up, right? Like if they were taught to believe certain things, they're going to utilize scripture to enhance that or to solidify it. I know for the kids that I see during Sunday school and during children's time, 
they're bright, they're young, and I know how their parents or their guardians are teaching them to read the Bible. And it's a lot different than like when I was growing up or when their parents were growing up. And I think we give power to scripture because we want to give power to scripture because we want power ourselves. We want to be able to control things. So when we have scripture that tells us thou shall not murder, thou shall not mark on your body, treat your body like a temple, we're going to create power from that to say, see, here's what it means. I'm going to give meaning to it because I can, because I was taught that I can, because that's how I was taught to read the Bible. I think that that is a really important thing to highlight because like, I think that people weaponize scripture because they were taught that they could weaponize scripture. Mm-hmm. Like, I think very few people actually come to that conclusion on their own. I do think it happens, right. but I think that more often than not, it's, it's people using scripture in a way that they've been told they can use scripture in that way. And how they've seen it modeled before them. Yeah. Yes. And then I think the challenge becomes like, well, then how do you like, how do you challenge that in a productive way? Like, is mm-hmm. it just talking about like cultural context or is it talking about like authorship or is it trying to show someone that maybe they're picking and choosing <laughs> the scriptures mm-hmm. that they're like trying to take seriously? I think that's a hard one. It is. Have either of you witnessed anyone change their mind because of what they read in the bible wait say that again really generic question i know no i think i see what you're getting at have either of you okay i was raised on the bible in the bible with the bible to consider it absolutely authoritative Mm -hmm. for teachings on life and factually inerrant in those aims And a refrain that was given to me at a very young age was when you're reading something in the Bible, and this was like, this was pre any training in hermeneutics. So this was like, you know, I was probably the age of kids in your children's time before you send them off, Emily. Mm -hmm. Imagine one of those kids sitting there and you're looking down on them and saying, whenever you read something in the Bible... And it's a very hand wavy quote, the Bible, like we're not sure we're not narrowing down to anything except for the things that are found within the binding of the physical book you're holding. Whenever you read something in the Bible and you disagree with it, change your mind because the Bible is right, is how I was trained Mm -hmm. to approach it. And I just have to call absolute fucking bullshit on that (laughs) i've never seen that happen i have like there is a way that you can be trained up you know you gotta if you hit that line early and often in a child and then you sneak in the side door all your own cultural opinions all your political beliefs and all those kind of things and are able to match it to a word or two that are found within the very large binding of this book that we hold in our hands that's what we're actually being trained into we're not being trained into the bible because the bible is so complex and so nuanced and has is full of not only a context but i would argue hundreds of contexts going on inside this book but when people say if you disagree with the bible change your mind because the bible is always right and then they also say And also that means this very specific thing about how you should consider abortion in the 21st century or 
This mm. is how you should consider the wielding of weapons against a fellow image bearer. You can implant so many cultural opinions into the Bible when you find a convenient word, as long as someone has been indoctrinated, dare I say brainwashed, to say if the Bible says it in any way, if there's a hint of what this person is saying, written in the words, again, with the written bias even, if there's a hint that that is written in here, I must have to be changing my mind because the Bible is right and I have to go with that. And I personally have never seen someone read the Bible on face value and change their mind the way I was trained to think about it. I have only ever seen people actually change, actually repent, actually metanoia when it is accompanied by a new cultural viewpoint that maybe they hadn't considered in the past. Like, why is it a stereotype at this point that I thought gay people were evil until I met one? Mm. You know, like, why is that something that people say? It's because that culture is actually coming up against them and they're now seeing a human with their own complexities and their own lives. Oh, but the Bible says, you know, like, I can't, I can't, like, fraternize with the enemy or whatever. Like, I'm not, <laughs> I, I don't want to live in Sodom or whatever. And it's like, mm. yeah, I like, it makes sense that you would think that when, when two things are happening, when you're told that a uh, plain face reading of the Bible can give you everything you need and is true. And if you disagree with it, then you're wrong and you have to change. And when you're isolated from the very people who could show you a different way of seeing it, a different way of reading it, applying it, interpreting it. We just want to say how honored we are that you listen to Ravel. Seriously, there's a lot of great shows out there, and we're grateful to be in your feed. Thank you for helping us on our journey to normalize people asking questions about theology. If you want to support what we're doing, the best way to help is to tell a friend about us. We want to be a resource for people on their faith journeys, whether they're deconstructing, reconstructing, switching churches, deconverting, and everything in between. And if you're able, you can support us for as little as $3 a month on our Patreon. Supporting us helps us cover fees, software, equipment, future ideas, and more. For all of you church finance skeptics out there like me, don't worry, we're keeping an open book for transparency. For our supporters, we've built an online space where we can be together. We know it can be difficult to ask questions about our faith, so we want to make that more accessible, comfortable, and normal. We're using an app called Discord, where you'll get private access. You already know us, and we'd love to get to know you. Thank you to everyone who's already supporting, and thank you to Louis Zong for the use of our theme music, In Full Color. It makes me sad to see scripture weaponized. And I know that that's not a new phenomenon. Like, it's been happening forever. And it's probably going to continue to happen, honestly. But it just makes me sad that something that was compiled and written to be formative and inspiring and maybe even a glimpse to say here's what not to do like here are some stories of shitty things that happened that like we don't want to see repeated 
to propel us to be better people to actually follow in Jesus's footsteps and to actually like carry out <laughs> the commandments that are meant to be life-giving and not hindering or limiting. It just makes me so sad to see like when I'm walking through town and you know I pick up a newspaper and I see Tennessee having statewide ban on drag queens and now with Kentucky having one of the most anti-LGBTQ bans pushed forward and hearing of all these legislative bodies that are coming together and using scripture as a foundation and as a motive of fear to propel people to say, here's what's really the problem. I cry. Like my heart just sinks to see the state that we are in in regards to religious beliefs, traditions, texts, people being weapons, literally being used to harm others. And that's the very thing that we're supposed to not do, <laughs> but we are. I, I agree with you that I think that it's uh, it's very unfortunate the way that scripture gets used sometimes. But uh, to go a little bit of a lighter angle too, I think it's hysterical when somebody who clearly believes that the Bible has literally every answer is authoritative, inspiring, or or like yeah, even if they like, even if they think that like the Bible should just be the center focal point for christian doxology like even if they think that it should just be like the focus like the things that christians come to to agree and disagree on when they try to use the bible as justification to people who like don't have anywhere close to that view of the bible it's literally so funny (laughs) like the street preacher dude that i like (laughs) yelled at and also had a conversation with in pike place like oh my gosh going on two years ago now Mm -hmm. like literally nobody's listening to him because like even if you had the exact same view of the bible as him you would probably kind of be like, ah, uh, yeah, I agree with you, but like, I don't know. These people like probably aren't like like listening to anything you're saying because they like don't regard the Bible as authoritative in that way. Mm-hmm. Like, you'd be like yelling about the Constitution to French people in France. Like, it <laughs> makes no sense to do that. <laughs> and I just came up with that right now, and I'm kind of proud of that. Um, <laughs> and then the other funny part to me is people who are like who are like seeing scripture being used in like they're attempting to use it in very like broad sweeping ways, like whether it's for legislation or for city things or even just like, like social discourse. And then people in the spirit of malicious compliance, one of the best subreddits ever are just going, Oh, okay. I see you using the Bible, using one verse out of the Bible to support your view. Let's use another verse out of the Bible to support a completely different view that like shows you how ridiculous this is. Like let's just, Mm. let's ban tattoos. Let's do it. I'm with you on the Bible. Let's let's just get rid of all the tattoos ever. <laughs> like we should force people to take them off. We should for blah 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 blah. Mm-hmm. And then and then people are like, oh whoa whoa. Uh, I mean I did I didn't mean it like uh, I mean I didn't mean it like that. <laughs> it's like I mm. see your tattoo ban and I raise you the no eating of seafood. My and it it's <laughs> yeah. like situations like that that like to me best highlight the like self parody. Mm-hmm. That is yeah. using the Bible totally. to just defend your own personal beliefs. Uh-huh. Yeah. On yeah. what you think should happen in society. My favorite example of this, as I saved the screenshot because I loved it so much on Twitter, Mason Menigo was tweeting about universalism again. And uh, somebody 
went and started replying to him and they were trying to argue, well, like that's not a complete uh, like rendition of the gospel. You're like universalism, like cheapens, you know, our free will or whatever. And they kept going on like the gospel. Right. And he Mm -hmm. replies and by gospel, you mean to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of Jubilee. Right. And this guy is replying, Uh-oh. by the way, his name on Twitter is Dr. Pronoun, which uh, what? chef's kiss. But he goes, I believe he's he, a doctor, I guess. He goes, I believe he proclaimed the good news to everyone. I do not recall the poor having any particular focus. And Mason goes, Wait, what? I mean, he said he came specifically to preach good news to the poor. And the guy goes, no, he did not. What passage is this you speak of? <laughs> and so many people took that screenshot Uh-oh. and they were like, my dude, this is Luke four. <laughs> like it's right oh, there. <laughs> God. Oh God. Twitter is free. Everybody. Oh. It's, it's literally such a good time all the time. Almost. It's a free website. <sighs> I just, yeah, that was just one of those of like, I, I don't recall Jesus having a specific <laughs> focus on the poor. And it's like, hmm, my guy, it's there. It's there. It's, don't you love it when people lose at their own game? Yes. Oh, yeah. Like, it's literally like a win stupid prizes kind of situation. <laughs> I also think, though, that speaks volumes to the idea of how you were taught to read the Bible. Yep. Yeah. Totally agree. Mm-hmm. Like... We just got done here at Cody. We had a class about the historical Jesus. And one of the stories we were talking about, I don't even know how it came up in the class, but it was fantastic, was the Noah narrative, right? And so I was talking about how Noah sent out a raven and then sent out a dove. And they were like, wait, Noah sent out a raven too? And I was like, (laughs) yeah, you didn't know that? (laughs) They were like, no, I thought it was just a dove. And so we got to dive deep into that and talked about the raven and then talked about the dove. And it just like blew my mind that they didn't know about the raven. But then I was reminded that's how they were taught to read. For so long, the story that we were told was there was a great flood that was coming. So Noah had to gather all these animals two by two And when the floods had receded, he sent out a dove to make sure it was safe to be on dry land, right? Like, there's so much of the narrative that we're not getting. Like, I talked about how, do you know how many animals Noah brought? They're like, two of each kind. And I was like, no, (laughs) two of each kind. And then seven pairs of clean animals. And they were like, wait, what? And it just blew my mind that we don't Mm. teach how to read. The Bible. I mean, did you even get into the topic of how Noah is a mythological figure? No, we didn't even get, we didn't even get to that point. <laughs> we didn't even get to that because the revelation of Noah even sending out a raven was mind boggling. Yeah. Yeah. It, it might be a little too dangerous to be like, and also he was made up for the purposes <laughs> of building a world myth. So, like, one thing at a time, okay, yeah. Stephen? One yeah. thing at a time. Well, though, like, I don't know exactly what you would call it, but, like, I guess, like, the misrepresentation of Bible stories, I think, is really prominent. And I think that, like, going back to Dan Koch from You Have Permission, the, the phrase that he loves, like, by people with good intentions, like, I think that a lot of people, like, tell stories to children or, like, in it's in media or it's in, um, or it's like you're, like, simplifying a story for the sake of an example in a sermon. And it, like, I think a lot of people don't intend to like 
oversimplify. Like in the case of like Noah's Ark, that person probably just learned in Sunday school that, oh, there was two of every kind on the Ark, which is technically true. Like according to the story, I'm not saying that like, I personally don't believe it actually happened. I don't think we've actually talked about that. I don't know. Um, Like according to the story, that is technically true. There's just more than that. You know what I mean? There's this uh, proposal. Oh my God. I don't want to get too in the weeds on this, but just for the sake of example, because I saw this recently, there's this proposed curriculum change in Florida regarding a history textbook and Rosa Parks. Did you already hear about this? No, I didn't. Okay. There's like been several renditions and like, it's like for like elementary school age, right? So it's like already not too in the weeds. And it's like a little blurb, like about a short bio of Rosa Parks. And the first part of the story like makes acknowledgement of race, her race and the race of people on the bus who, and that there was like the expectation for black passengers to give up their seats to white passengers and that she refused to do so because she believed it was not right. And then the second iteration that was like sent back for review by whoever, the legislator or something was about, it only made mention of her race. And it said, like, based on the color of her skin. So it, it, like, made a mention of race, but, like, nobody's specific race. And it didn't mention that, like, the the whole situation. The final rendition that is, like, being proposed, like, because of this, like, new law that's being... I don't actually know if it's being enacted or if it's, like, still in the legislation. So don't quote me on that. You could look this up on your own time. I don't get paid to be here. (laughs) The, uh, the, The final rendition, as it were, that is being at least proposed is only saying that she was being asked to give up her seat and she said no. No mention of race, no mention of like Jim Crow laws, no picture, nothing. And like, think about that as an example for a second. Like Mm -hmm. it is technically true that she was asked to give up her seat, but there's like so much more story to it. Yeah, it's not entirely true. There's more to it. And like we, we as a modern reader who like know more of the context of Rosa Parks because we're not that far removed and we probably talked about it also in high school and in college and like there is something to be said for like age appropriateness and like like trying to like build building blocks and like structure for curricula Um, and I admit I admit that there's nuance there and I think the same can be true of the Bible but like I think that there's a lot of things like that with the Bible and like the way that the Bible has been taught to our generation and probably the current generation that's being raised by the church. And I think that we should like have the, the humility to assume that we are reading something like that, that like oversimplification that like, while technically might be true that it says that like, there's probably so much more to the story that like has been debated for hundreds of years. Hmm. And I think that it's hard to like, I, I don't think it's an untenable view to believe in the inspiration of the Bible or even that like the Bible is like giving us things of value and prescribing things for modern life, even if it was written for an audience in antiquity. I think that like, that's not illogical to think that it like has very valuable things to offer us in everyday life. But I think that like getting across that nuanced view to people is like really, really difficult when your view of the Bible is like so like concrete and cut and dry like the classic, like the Bible says it, I believe it. It's like really, I don't know. I, I want to have, I actually, I think I have a good idea for a bonus episode more related to like talking to people about that, like that kind of stuff. But I like think back on the ways that I used to believe about the Bible because Stephen, I don't think that I was raised 
quite with the same view of like the Bible is like the complete authority, like change your mind if the Bible says something different. I think that I was given a view of cultural context for the most part, especially like going into college. But even then, looking back from where I am now, I still see a lot of myself then doing a lot of cherry picking and a lot of like, like seeing like a section of the Bible supporting this view that I have. But then like, just not knowing like mm. all of this other st- I think I think a lot of it comes back to personally for, for me. I think a lot of it came back to like just not knowing that the Bible said all these other things. Like whether it's in like Levitical law or like Bible stories. I really think that it's like not to sound all high and mighty about this, but I think it's a point of ignorance. Like I think that a lot of people just don't even have a clue that the Bible talks about bashing kids' heads in. Or like if they are against tattoos, they probably don't even know that there's a verse in Leviticus about tattoos. Mm. You know what I mean? Uh, hot take. <laughs> Strap in. Ready? Ready? Uh, I have changed my opinion since the beginning of our podcasting adventures a couple of years ago. Whoa. I'm willing to say that I think cherry picking is normal and fine. I think what you choose to do with it is what matters. Mm. If you are coming to the Bible looking for a weapon, if you're looking for a sword to go fight your holy wars and enforce what you think is right based on your own cultural context because of the way your parents taught you, the way your pastors taught you, the way the people around you inspire you to act a certain way, look at things a certain way. I think if you're looking, if you're going to the Bible and cherry picking for weapons and for swords, I have a problem with that. But if you're going to the Bible and looking for things to cherry pick that you make tools and plowshares instead, I think that's okay. That's what I do. I'll 100% acknowledge that that is what I do with the Bible. There are whole books of the Bible that I honestly think I will never read again in my life because I just don't think they're valuable to me. Hmm. And I've read them probably two or three times. I've read through the Bible three times. So that's not to say I'm just like choosing to ignore the fact that the prophet Joel exists, but I've come to a place in my life where like, I'm not sure Joel has anything for me right now, but I, on a daily basis, cherry pick things that I view as garden tools for daily living where I have no desire to wield a sword and enforce the way I think on anyone, but I would love to spend the time with the exact same verse, maybe and treat it as a tool and cultivate what I can and let it grow how it will and do what I can to inspire that in others, not from a top down, but rather from like bury it deep in the soil, see what happens next season. The cherry picking that I do nowadays is inspired by a hermeneutic of love, mercy, grace, and peace first. I think there are conversations we can have about, you know, God's justice, God's holiness or whatever. And however you want to consider that affects your life today or what you think your afterlife is going to be later. But if something draws me closer to love and peace, if I am a peacemaker and a love maker in the world, then I believe that I am following Christ to the best of my abilities. And dare I say, I think he would be proud of that and affirm that even if i get so many other bullshit inconsequential things wrong in my life i want to say that the cherry picking that i do right now 
to look for tools to make me a better, more loving person? Nah, I don't think the divine or whatever you think it is, I don't think they would have a problem with that. Would you say that cherry picking is a facet of finding life-giving theology? I was literally about to ask that same question. <laughs> because like, I, I don't remember what episode we talked about this in. I've, I'm sure I've mentioned it multiple times, but like, I think that the Christian should like be rallied around the gospels. And I, th- I mm-hmm. think that there's like a really strange dynamic sometimes with Christians and what the Christians call the Old Testament and revering it in a very radically different way than Jews ever have. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think that like the Christian, rightfully so, should cherry pick the Gospels. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that that should be controversial. Mm-hmm. Man. Yeah. So I'm, uh, I'm a cherry picker now. Cherry picker. I'm all for it. Okay. Do it. Okay. If it draws but, you closer to love. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. I was, I was going to say like, if that's your rule of thumb for cherry picking. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. But all of that to say, like going back to originally uh, Emily's original question of like, how do you differentiate between prescriptive and descriptive? Mm. Sure. Like, how do you still have that in mind? And also like trying to hold that you don't know everything also. Well, and I'm going to add this as my final thought. And maybe this is even a continuation topic. Um, Maybe something that is not a weapon to you is seen as a weapon to others, because I know. In my own church, we have people wrestling with the idea of being open, affirming, and reconciling. And it's because while good intentioned, you know, well-meaning behind it, people who are force-feeding ideas, right, who are not actually sharing ideas in a way that's life-giving. Again, their heart is in the right place. The idea of being open and affirming and reconciling is wonderful, but it's how you share that message that matters. And so to some people, they don't like the idea because it's been weaponized against them. It's been used to make them feel ashamed or guilty. And we shouldn't be doing that. Mm. So there's a fine line this between. Is, <laughs> yeah, this is going to sound really uh, evangelical because honestly, this this is a big attitude that I think I still hold as like. That was probably a valuable thing. I think that there is room for viewing certain parts of the Bible as prescriptive. What I don't think you can do is, hmm, man, dare I just say that whatever prescriptions you find in the Bible, you should use them to address the speck in your eye and not the log in anyone else's eye. The prescriptions are for you, bud. Like, to turn those around and say like, we'll see like the, like if you are going to live that out, address the spec in your own eye, take that prescription as a prescription. If you choose to see it that way, here's this evangelical idea. I think that that is just going to lead you into a way of showing up in the world that might just make people like wonder what's up. Hmm. Why are you that way? And then you get to say, you know, I find this valuable to me and uh, this is why I was inspired this way, but literally call back to episode 127 about general advice causing specific harm Mm -hmm. and also episode 76 pushy Christian prescriptions. 
Yes. Just get more evidence that like we are not going to stop talking about hyperlinking. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Emily, is there any way you could give us some sort of prescriptive scriptural charge on the way out? I'm really thinking about this. (laughs) Um, (laughs) That silence was everything I wanted. (laughs) (laughs) I can either end on a serious note or I could end with know that loving your neighbor may cause some side effects such as open hearts, open minds, willingness to serve others, willingness to love others, willingness to set aside selfish needs and or ideas. Yeah, what a yeah, what a call. That was really funny. That was good. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. What, I, I, what, maybe I, maybe to cl- I get, maybe to close it would just be like just I don't I don't You know what I don't know is how to close this episode because it, I feel like there's no way to close, you know, like there's no way to like neatly wrap up this idea because it still makes me mad and I still have a lot of thoughts on it. And maybe this is just something that y'all need to address on your own time and sit and wrestle with it because that's a good thing sometimes, even if it makes you feel weird. (laughs) 